Can I ask you, please, to turn in your Bibles to the passage uh, that was read for us earlier in uh, Judges chapter 16. Uh, And if you can keep your Bibles open, that might prove uh, helpful as we proceed. This morning, we considered the, the amazing potential of Samson a potential initially squandered as a result of his sin and recklessness and indiscipline, uh, an out-of-control demolition man, uh, if you like. But we also noted that in chapter 15 and verse 20, this, this verse might allow for the possibility of a more stable, fruitful Leadership in what we described as the in-between years. However, quite a different pattern emerges in chapter 16. It is one of great personal tragedy, which gives way to a picture of unbelievable triumph. And that's the the roadmap that I hope we'll follow uh, this afternoon Uh, First of all, great personal tragedy. At times, Samson seems to be two quite different people. Uh, Not a schizophrenic, but certainly an enigma. And that's not an uncommon Christian experience. Augustine, struggling to understand his inward desires, which dragged him into a pattern of sinful behavior, famously exclaimed, I am a puzzle to myself. I'm an enigma, in other words. Paul reflects on this same experience in Romans 7 and verse 19, where he writes, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. The Westminster Confession brings clarity to this enigma by reminding believers that they possess uh, two natures. It teaches that the remnants of the sinful flesh, the old man, cling to the new man that we have become in Christ Jesus. What does Paul say in Galatians 5.17? For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Uh, bottom line is we are a war zone. Now both Old Testament and New Testament saints live out their lives in battlefield conditions. At any time, our sinful flesh can erupt and drag us into sin. Ah, you say, uh, but unlike us, Samson had no access to the resources that the New Testament believer has or to the teaching that speaks of uh, mortifying the flesh or putting to death. Uh, that flesh on a daily basis or putting on the whole armor of God. Now, while it is true, some saints clearly grasped that their lives were lived out on a spiritual 
battlefield. Uh, listen to the psalmist, one, Psalm 141. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Let not my heart be drawn to what is evil. Uh, we find here a very clear recognition of the need of both grace and vigilance. But Samson, I would suggest to you, proved himself to be a careless watchman. He was certainly oblivious to what was his Achilles heel. He had a a wandering eye for the ladies. On three separate occasions, he's drawn towards Philistine women, uh, the external source, if you like, of his downfall. And this begs a question of supreme importance to us. I wonder, have we identified our spiritual Achilles heel? Do we know what the point of our greatest vulnerability is? Why is that so uh, important? Well, to be vigilant watchmen, we must know where the enemy is most likely to strike? Will it be through gluttony or greed, pornography, an unbridled tongue given to verbal assassination? The list is endless and it varies from person to person. Have we set a a rigorous guard on our Achilles heel or are we careless watchmen? By going to Gaza, In chapter 16, verse 1, Samson is surely playing with fire. It's it's the very heart of the enemy's stronghold. It's the greatest of the, the five major Philistine cities. It's the home of the Temple of Dagon. Uh, You could be sure no tourist visa would be issued to Samson. Uh, He was persona non grata. In Philistine territory. You might as well paint a target in your back, Samson. And on arrival, notice he headed for the red, red light district and picked up a prostitute for a one night stand. What brashness! What folly! And when we ask, well, what drove him to do such a thing? I wonder what his uh, psychology notes uh, might reveal. First, might they suggest that he was attempting to satisfy his lust in an alien environment? Was it the case that here he could let his hair down without adversely affecting his standing and reputation back home? Well, after all, he was a judge in Israel. Such reasoning is not uncommon. Young people come up to university and free from the apron strings of family, friends and their local church, sometimes think they can experiment with sin without restraint. In the same way, many teens speak of going off on foreign holidays because they think, I can experiment with sin without having to look over my shoulder all the time. Satisfy lust in an alien environment. 
Secondly, we ask, did Samson think that he deserved a little downtime? After all, I faithfully served God these many years. He won't begrudge me just a little downtime, surely. How many Sunday school teachers, elders, church workers, missionary supporters, and ministers have used this argument to justify their sin? They want to keep just one little area of their life over which God is given no control and where they remain Lord. But if Christ's Lordship does not disrupt our own Lordship, then something is seriously wrong. To those who think it burdensome to submit unreservedly to Christ's Lordship, John Stott has this to say, a relationship of submission to Christ, far from crushing our personalities, enables them to develop. Just as children grow most naturally into maturity within the loving discipline of a secure and happy home, so Christians grow into maturity in Christ under his loving authority. To lose ourselves in the service of Christ is to find ourselves. His lordship in our lives spells not frustration, but fulfillment and freedom. Samson foolishly sought fulfillment outside of God's lordship. Thirdly, did Samson think that he could sin without affecting the effectiveness of his service? Is he thinking, God needs me? He will surely indulge my little sin. Or did he think, I'm too strong to let sin get the mastery over me? Did he try and compartmentalize his life so that spiritual services placed in one box and his sinful lifestyle in another and then believe that these two are unrelated somehow? Didn't he realize that the more you feed a particular sin, the more you're strengthening its stranglehold upon the whole of your life? I wonder if some listening today have discovered that reality. Well, inevitably news of Samson's presence in Gaza reached the authorities who set in motion a plan to capture him. However, Samson got up in the middle of the night, lifted the city's barbed gates and gateposts onto his shoulders, verse 3, and escaped with uh, what I think must have been a triumphalistic swagger. His load wasn't shed after a few yards' notice. He carried it to the hill across from Hebron. Now that's something like 38 miles into Judah's heartland. What's he doing? Well... He's thumbing his nose at the Philistines. He's saying, so much for your pathetic security. Where is it? 
38 miles away, uh, thinking that. I suppose that's on a par with a child hacking the Pentagon database and unearthing the firing codes for uh, their nuclear arsenal. Oh, the, the humiliated Philistines will seek redress. If not extradition, then the wanted posters for Samson's capture surely doubled, trebled in value. But we're left asking, did Samson's success, his monumental feat, cause him to think that his sexual dalliance was somehow excusable in God's eyes? You know, I was able to do it, wasn't I? I carried those gates 38 miles, no problem. If so, then his presumption has set him up for a devastating fall. And surely Samson was a presumptuous uh, combatant. I remember uh, Boris Grishenko in the Bond film GoldenEye, with which I'm sure many of you are familiar. Uh, Boris, a computer hacker, intoxicated by his skill, shouts out, I am invincible! I am invincible! Well... Did Samson persuade himself that his relationship with Delilah was somehow or other different from any previous relationship? Well, verse 4 tells us he's fallen in love. Oh, that's different, is it not? He's fallen in love. How many have justified their sin, be it adultery or incestuous relationships or fornication, with these words? I was in love. I was in love. True love rejects sinful behavior. Delilah, the subtle seductress, has uh, modeled, I suppose, the femme fatale throughout uh, history. And the human psychology of the story graphically illustrates the kind of pressures that can be brought to bear within the context of an emotional entanglement of this degree of intensity. Samson, if you really loved me, drip. Samson, if you really loved me, drip. Samson, if you really, really loved me, drip. Samson was so blinkered by his passion for Delilah that caution is thrown to the wind. He's blind to the treachery of Delilah's real objective. Her collusion with the Philistines for monetary reward argues a hopelessness of infatuation on Samson's part, which inevitably leads to disaster. Now, if Samson thought he could play a little game with Delilah as she tried to discover the secret of his strength, then he failed to grasp the wearing down process he'd locked himself into. Drip, 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 drip. 
The emotional interrogation wore him down and his secret was given up. Samson still believed himself to be invincible. He presumed that despite his sinful disobedience, God could always be relied upon to come to his rescue. And now we come to what I think is one of the most tragic, one of the most frightening verses in all of Scripture. After Delilah had cut his hair and shouted, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. We read in verse 20. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson thought all he had to do was flex his muscles and throw off the Philistines as on previous occasions. But nothing happened. God had left him. He was sure not only of his hair, but of God's power. He presumed upon God's presence always being with him, no matter how he lived his life, because God needed him. Too late, Samson realized it was he who needed God. Having taken for granted that uh, he'd failed to notice, God had left. He'd taken God for granted all this time and he'd failed to notice God was no longer with him. Like the pre-flood victims, you'll remember, who said, of whom God said, my spirit will not always strive with man. Isn't it sobering to grasp that there is an invisible line over which we can cross where God says no more, no more. Of course, it's easy to lay all the blame on Samson's downfall in Delilah, but Samson had a capacity for flirting with forbidden things. It was he who who set in motion, if you like, a moral chain reaction that made it inevitable that he would give up his secret. The, The real mistakes were made long before he met Delilah. The the unguarded Achilles heel of his emotional life was where the seed of this tragedy was sown. A man of great potential was left grinding, not just grain, but grinding out an existence in the prison house of Gaza. God's chosen, chosen vessel failed to become the man that he might have been. And that's surely a sobering challenge uh, to us all. The best course of action is always to have nothing to do with the things that God cannot and will not bless. This leads us on to what we've described as an unbelievable triumph. Samson was captured, blinded, and imprisoned. What a telling irony 
The man who has had an eye for the ladies has his eyes removed. See the irony? Might Jesus have had Samson in mind when he said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Samson, metaphorically speaking, failed to pluck out his eyes. He failed, in Job's words, to make a covenant with his eyes. And now the national hero is reduced to the role of a domesticated beast grinding out flour. Picture, if you will, the Philistine children ridiculing the bogeyman of their dreams, peeking in through the door of the, of the mill house. Eh, hey, blindy. Uh, and all that goes on in children's minds. But as we reflect on Samson's final performance, it's very important to remind ourselves that evil does not have the last word in God's world. God is not finished with his humiliated man. You see, God is well able to use humiliation to restore us to a correct perspective. I think there's a very helpful example of this in the life of Nebuchadnezzar of whom we read in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30 where Nebuchadnezzar says, Is not the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power for the great glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven, this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven years will pass uh, for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth whom he gives to anyone he wishes. Now, notice the correcting work of this humiliation. For as we reach verse 34 of Daniel 4, we read, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one and hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? The great Babylonian emperor, humbled by God, the humiliation producing repentance 
and the repentance becomes the route to his restoration. When humiliation achieves God's objective in Samson's heart, then I want to argue that repentance does appear to follow. C.S. Lewis perceptively writes, this repentance, this willing submission to humiliation and a kind of death is not something God demands of you before he will take you back and which he could let you off if he chose. It is simply a description of what going back to him is like. If you ask God to take you back without it, you are really asking him to let you go back without going back. It cannot happen. Samson's humiliation was not a negative experience. The prison house of humiliation gives him time to think and to learn salutary lessons. And you can be sure that there was confession and repentance and a fresh awareness of the privilege of having God's empowering presence in his life. Why do we say that? Well, having been told of his imprisonment, verse 21, our attention is arrested by a little word, but... Whenever but appears in scripture, uh, it often introduces something terribly important. But the hair on his head began to grow. Now, this is more than a statement of physiological fact. Remember, his hair symbolized his separation to God's service. His hair in itself didn't give him strength. God gave him strength as he had consecrated himself uh, to God, the Nazarite. That's what's happening here. The hair symbolized his separation to God's service. Its growth reflects an inward repentance and reconsecration. If someone listening has failed God, not necessarily as scandalously or as publicly as Samson, do not write yourself off. There is a glorious hope and the grace of a new beginning following on from fruitful humiliation and repentance. Here grows again, metaphorically speaking, God restores strength to his people. In verses 23 to 25, the Philistine celebration taking place brings to mind the VE Day celebrations in London in 1945. Now that was just before my time, but... I've seen the relief on the faces of the crowds and sensed their euphoria and witnessed the dancing in the streets. The war is over. The enemy is defeated. However, 
the Philistine celebrations took a particular turn. Look at verse 24. When the people saw Samson, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. Do you see the implication? Since Samson is our prisoner, then the idea that Israel's God is all-powerful and sovereign is sheer religious propaganda. It's not true. Uh, Use your imagination. I I picture them uh, beating their goblets on the table and saying, Dagon rules, Dagon rules, Dagon rules. This humiliated man before us demonstrates that reality. Well, evil often oversteps its mark, congratulating itself prematurely. Think for a moment of how the powers of evil prematurely celebrated their victory over a crucified Jesus, thinking him a spent force, no longer one in whose presence they needed to tremble. He celebrated too soon, far, far too soon. And so the celebrants here put Samson on show, verse 25 following. This once mighty warrior, now a mere shadow of his former self, Samson is led to a spot of his choice, for his final performance. You don't need to be a structural engineer to know why this spot. I wonder if you've ever played the game Jenga. Then you'll know that some blocks can be removed without damaging the the structural integrity of the tower. But the removal of others causes the whole structure to come crashing down. Well, Samson located himself between the two pillars that gave structural cohesion to Dagon's temple, the strength of Israel's God in Samson would be pitted against that of Dagon. And so in verse 28, Samson prays, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now his presumptuous sin had led to his capture and blindness, leaving him incapable of fulfilling his God-given role as deliverer or had it. The temple building, including the roof terrace, and on the roof terrace there were 3,000, we're not told how many were in the, the, the main level of the temple, uh, but it was packed and the whole thing collapsed. We're told, verse 27, all the rulers of the Philistines were there. Now, why is that so important? Well, the political leaders who shaped the policy of oppression against Israel were there. The military leaders who executed that policy were there. The religious leaders who fueled the fires of anti-Semitism were there. All sought to 
ridicule the God of Israel and his servant, at which moment the object of their entertainment quite literally brought the house down. And in his dying act, Samson did more to set back Philistine expansionism and oppression for some time to come. And of course, it was eventually the little boy with the sling uh, who knocked the heart out of the Philistines. And eventually, when he became king, uh, subdued them uh, completely. Samson may have been the most imperfect of judges. However, in his final performance, we see a veiled foreshadowing of a greater, a far greater accomplishment. That of the perfect judge, our Lord Jesus. His death became his greatest triumph and through it brought eternal deliverance and eternal life to his people. Everlasting salvation. Now in many respects the the story of Samson is the story of uh, what could have been It serves as a grave and a sobering warning to every believer to identify what we've termed as our spiritual Achilles heel and to exercise a particular vigilance over that area of our lives. Yes, we need to watch and pray. But this story also sends a message of hope to those conscious of the collapse of their spiritual service because of their sin. God always meets genuine repentance with measureless forgiveness. His consummate care of his people is prepared to lead them into the the deepest valleys of humiliation in order to generate a genuine repentance. It is his gift to broken disasters, to self-confident flops, to presumptuous washouts. Friends, today, if you have found yourself accused before the bar of God's justice, then it's not a better lawyer that you need, but a clearer, fuller, richer grass of the overwhelming mercy of God. Dare you imagine in the winter years of your life knowing more of God's presence and power than in all your life hitherto. Greater usefulness, greater fruitfulness. It's possible. It's certainly possible. Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a flawed man like Samson, who is a warning to us to identify and set guard over 
our own spiritual Achilles heel, whatever that might be. A warning against the presumptuousness that argues that God needs us when it's the reverse that's the case. We thank you, Father, that you love us enough to bring us into those deepest valleys of humiliation where the roots of genuine repentance can begin to grow and so produce lives that can be effectual, fruitful, significant in your service. May this be true uh, of all in need of your grace at this time. And Lord, who among us do not need that grace? So come and help and make us effective in your service for Jesus' sake. Amen.